Hello, everyone, and welcome to the January 30th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A firefighter lost his post-injury discrimination case against the County of Los Angeles and the Court of Appeal. Here's what happened in the unpublished opinion of Michael Shannon versus Los Angeles County Fire Department. Michael Shannon was employed by the Los Angeles County Fire Department since 1987. He achieved the rank of firefighter specialist and was qualified to drive the urban search and rescue truck. He had an exemplary record. In 2004, he suffered an injury which placed him on light duty, and later he became temporarily totally disabled. In 2005, he was also diagnosed with a major depression. By 2006, he was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Four days after the PTP informed Intercare Insurance Services that Shannon had been diagnosed with PTSD, the employer wrote Shannon indicating that it intended to discharge him for an event in 2005 when he was found in a deep sleep and had to be awakened to respond to a call. At the time, Shannon had bloodshot eyes and was slurring his speech that day and the next day. He was also driving erratically. Shannon denied the allegations and requested a Skelly hearing. Shannon was discharged effective September 7th. No progressive discipline was used with Shannon, and as a result, Shannon was successful in overturning the discharge. A hearing officer found that there was no presumption that Shannon was under the influence of alcohol or drugs because the procedure required to attain that presumption, a demand for a drug test, did not occur. The hearing officer concluded that, to the extent that Shannon's driving on September 28th was below par, it was caused by a recognized medical condition and not by illegal drugs, prescription drugs, or alcohol. The hearing officer ultimately concluded that because this was Shannon's first discipline in 18 years, the discipline was disproportionate and the discharge was grossly unfair. The Civil Service Commission overturned Shannon's termination and he was reinstated with back pay. Shannon then sued the county fire department and individuals involved in his termination for disability discrimination and several other related causes of action. In his cause of action for disability discrimination, Shannon alleged that he suffered from PTSD and was perceived as suffering from drug abuse. He alleged that he was discriminated against on the basis of his PTSD and wrongfully terminated under the pretext that he used drugs. He alleged that the fire department failed to reasonably accommodate his need for medical attention due to PTSD or his perceived need for drug intervention. The trial court granted motions for summary judgment in favor of the employer and Shannon appealed. The Court of Appeal, in the unpublished opinion of Michael Shannon versus LACFD, sustained the dismissal of the case. The court concluded that although Shannon provided evidence he should not have been terminated, he failed to provide any evidence raising a triable issue that his termination was motivated by discriminatory animus or that Shannon was retaliated against or harassed because he suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder or a perceived drug addiction. The court noted that while an employer's judgment or course of action may seem poor or erroneous to outsiders, 
The relevant question is whether the given reason was a pretext for illegal discrimination or other illegal conduct. In this case, there was no evidence that it was. <clears throat> the Court of Appeal held that there is no subrogation when the employer has exclusive possession of an accident site. Here's what happened in the unpublished opinion of S.E. Motahedi versus Moose Holding Company. In 2008, S.E. Motahedi was employed by 90 cents, 99 cents only stores. She was an assistant manager of the Reseda facility, which was located in the Reseda Plaza, a shopping mall in Los Angeles County. 99 cent stores leased the building from the mall landlord, Moose Holding Company. Mrs. Motahedi had been working for the store at the Reseda location for some five years when she suffered an accident in June 2008. She was standing outside the gate to the store's loading dock, trying to close the gate when the gate fell on her. She commenced a workers' compensation proceeding against 99-cent stores and also filed a personal injury tort action against Moose and others. Her tort action was dismissed after a motion for summary judgment and Motahedi appealed the dismissal of her case. The Court of Appeals sustained the dismissal in the unpublished opinion of S.E. Motahedi versus Moose Holding Company. The loading dock enclosure was built out by 99-cent stores pursuant to the terms of their lease. Neither Moose nor Vaughn's company, which also had ownership rights over the common areas, was asked to construct the enclosure or to make repairs. The enclosure is within the area for which 99-cent stores paid rent and 99-cent stores was entitled to and had exclusive possession of the area. It was gated and locked and was used exclusively for the 99-cent stores. Only the 99-cent store manager had a key to the enclosure. It was 99-cent stores' custom and practice to keep the enclosed area locked in order to protect merchandise and equipment. No other tenant keeps merchandise or equipment there. 99-cent stores employees clean the area. After the enclosure gate fell on applicant, 99-cent stores made repairs, including replacement of the gate. The foregoing evidence established that 99-cent stores had exclusive possession and control of the loading dock structure, including the gate. The Court of Appeal found that the evidence demonstrates overwhelmingly that 99-cent stores, not Moose, controlled the enclosed loading dock area at the 99-cent store premises. The trial court correctly determined that stores had as much authority over the area as it did in its store premises open to the public. For these reasons, the case against the landlord was without merit and the case was dismissed. Hearing Representative Daniel Escamilla continues his battle against the WCAB suspension of his rights to continue to represent lien claimants. Last September, the WCAB sitting in Bank issued a notice that a hearing was scheduled to take evidence on whether or not it will suspend or remove Hearing Representative Daniel Escamilla's privilege to appear in any proceeding as a representative of any party before the Appeals Board. The allegations claim that while acting as a hearing representative for various lien claimants, Mr. Escamilla has been repeatedly sanctioned for engaging in bad faith actions or tactics that are frivolous or solely intended to cause unnecessary delay. 
The reasons for those sanctions included Mr. Escamilla's willful failure to comply with statutory and regulatory obligations, disruption and delay of proceedings for an improper motive, and presenting arguments that were indisputably without merit. Escamilla has previously filed a petition for reconsideration of this notice, which was denied. He has now filed two new petitions in propria persona, a petition for change of venue and a petition for removal and request for immediate stay of proceedings. It appears that Mr. Escamilla seeks a change of venue to an unspecified WCAB district office in Southern California. In his petition for removal, Mr. Escamilla seeks review of the orders by Workers' Compensation Administrative Law Judge David Hedick, uh, who relieved Tracy Hinden as his counsel of record, denied apportionment, uh, appointment of an attorney, and denied a 60-day continuance of the January 27th hearing. And the judge required Mr. Escamilla by January 6th to disclose the names and addresses of all witnesses together with a short, concise offer of proof as to their anticipated testimony. Mr. Escamilla also seeks stay of the proceedings so that the WCAB may address the issues raised in his petition so that he may engage in discovery and obtain counsel. The WCAB dismissed the petition for change of venue and denied the request for immediate stay of proceedings. With regard to the petition for change of venue, the Appeals Board initiated this proceeding and thus has only one location, San Francisco. No district office has venue in this proceeding. Venue is with the Appeals Board only. The WCAB concluded by saying, nevertheless, to afford Mr. Escamilla utmost due process as he requests, they will afford him one final additional opportunity to retain counsel to represent him in the matter prior to any further conference or hearing. Thus, they granted removal, affirmed the order relieving Ms. Hinden as his counsel, continued the January 27th hearing, and directed the hearing officer to reschedule the pre-hearing conference. And now our fraud report. A Yolo County jury found defendant Stephen Eugene Harder, age 45, of Woodland, guilty of five counts of workers' compensation insurance fraud relating to his claim for benefits. In 2009, the Yolo County District Attorney's Insurance Fraud Unit received a complaint from the State Compensation Insurance Fund alleging that the defendant was attempting to exaggerate his industrial injury and claiming that it was more severe than it actually was. During the course of the investigation, the defendant was observed acting, moving, and appearing in a manner that was inconsistent with his claimed injuries. The defendant was videotaped engaged in gold mining activity, which sharply contrasted with how he was presenting himself to the doctors that were treating him. The Honorable Stephen Mock of the Yolo County Superior Court will sentence Mr. Harder on March 23rd. Harder faces a maximum of eight years imprisonment and a fine of $150,000. This verdict is the result of the efforts of Deputy District Attorney Carolyn Palumbo, Lieutenant Dan Strosky, the District Attorney's Insurance Fraud Unit, and the State Compensation Insurance Fund. An investigation found that more than half of the disability retirements awarded to police officers under former Bell City Administrator Robert Rizzo 
including those given to three police chiefs, should not have been granted, and workers' compensation settlements for 13 officers were exceedingly large. As a result of those awards, the officers could receive millions of dollars in extra benefits. Because Bell is self-insured, the cost of the workers' comp settlements falls on the city. The city investigation was prompted by the state retirement system after the Los Angeles Times inquired about allegations that one of the L.A. County's poor cities had used disability and workers' compensation to provide bonus pay to police chief police chiefs Rizzo had forced out. The California Public Employees Retirement System asked Bell to investigate. The Times reported that at least two instances the city wrapped severance and unused vacation and sick time into the workers' comp settlements, which experts said violated tax laws. Rizzo and seven other officials in the financially strained town have been accused of draining the city treasury by paying themselves enormous salaries, handing out generous pensions, and lending city money to employees and businesses. David Thomas, the attorney who conducted the city's investigation, said that if CalPERS arrives at the same conclusion as the city, he expects it will refer the matter to the district attorney. It is unclear whether the awards and settlements can be rolled back. A CalPERS spokesman said the agency will conduct its own investigation. In a four-page letter to CalPERS, Thomas said his investigation was nothing short of a revelation. He said that the disability retirements were not justified in seven of the 13 cases, including those awarded to former chiefs Michael Chavez, Andreas Probst, and Dennis Travernelli. State law allows cities to approve disability retirements when an on-the-job injury prevents an employee from performing normal duties. A disability pension does not prevent them from taking other jobs. And in regulatory news, new federal regulations will require employers to demonstrate compliance with safety laws, wage and hour laws, and anti-discrimination laws. The Federal Department of Labor is working on an initiative known as Plan, Prevent, Protect, which will require employers to assemble plans, create processes, and designate people charged with achieving compliance with various workplace laws, including federal OSHA and other oversight agencies such as Mine Safety and Health Administration, the Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs, and the Wage and Hour Division. Employers will be required to implement these plans and evaluate their effectiveness in achieving compliance. According to the Department of Labor, compliance will be non-negotiable under the Plan, Prevent, Protect system. These various agencies will propose regulatory actions requiring employers to develop programs addressing certain employment law compliance issues within each agency's portfolio. Although the specifics will vary according to the Department of Labor, the Plan, Prevent, Protect strategy will require employers to take three steps to ensure safe workplaces and compliance with the law. One, the plan component requires employers to create a plan for identifying and remediating risks of legal violations and other risks to workers. Two, prevent requires employers to completely implement a plan in a manner that prevents legal violations. And three, protect 
means the employer must ensure that the plan's objectives are met on a regular basis. In other words, the plan must actually protect workers from violations of their workplace rights. Employers who fail to take these steps will be considered out of compliance with the law and subject to remedial action. Cal OSHA reported that a staffing buyer and a staffing firm in Southern California both received over $265,000 in citations for unsafe work conditions. The firms receiving the citations were National Distribution Centers and Tri-State Staffing. The citations cover more than 60 violations at four warehouses in the Inland Empire region east of Los Angeles. This is an area in the southern part of the state with a high concentration of warehouses. Violations included lack of fall protection from high-rise pickers, unstable storage stacking, and unguarded machinery. Cal OSHA Chief Ellen Whitus said that as dual employers sharing responsibility for training and worker safety, both national distribution centers and tri-state staffing were responsible for ensuring that all employees are protected on the job. The warehouse inspections followed a worker who suffered a heat-related illness in August, as well as complaints from Warehouse Workers United, the union. And in financial news, the Workers' Compensation Research Institute says the recent recession may have driven an increase in workers' compensation indemnity costs in California. Indemnity costs climbed an average of 7% per year between 2007 and 2009, despite little change in the average weekly wage of injured California workers during that time. That increase is compared with a 30% decline in indemnity costs per claim in California from 2005 to 2007. The decline was attributed largely to workers' comp reforms passed by California between 2002 and 2004. The report says that the average duration of temporary disability claims increased by one week per year during the recession, which drove much of the recession increase in indemnity costs. Other factors included more injured workers who were out of work for more than one week. The Workers' Comp Research Institute said the data is possible evidence that the recession had an impact on workers' comp costs. And in other news, insurance software company Guidewire began trading publicly on the New York Stock Exchange this week. It has raised $115 million in the initial public offering by selling 8.85 million shares at $13 a share. That's well above the 7.5 million shares at $10 to $12 that the company had planned. Guidewire filed its IPO paperwork in September and will use GWRE for its stock ticker. According to a Wall Street Journal report, two of the company's biggest investors, U.S. Venture Partners and Bay Partners, have shown interest in purchasing up to 400,000 shares of common stock at the IPO price. Guidewire provides software targeted at insurance companies in the property, workers' compensation, and casualty insurance industry. Its software product includes a web-based claim system, an enterprise application for transactions, and other administrative tasks. Founded in 2001, the San Mateo, California-based company 
bought in one brought in 190 million dollars in revenue in the last year. The company's net profits were 38.5 million dollars, while sales increased 51% to 52.4 million dollars in the most recent quarter. According to Guidewire, about 90% of the more than 7,000 insurance companies are still using outdated technology systems originally developed over 30 years ago, meaning there are still plenty of potential clients available. The company currently has more than 100 customers, including major insurance company clients, including Nationwide, CNA, and American Family Insurance. That's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or iPod by searching for WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.